Heavenly Father, we come before Thee this morning, and Lord, we're thankful for each one that is here. And Lord, we ask now that You would give us a blessing today, that You would encourage us in our service for You, that You would strengthen what needs to be strengthened in our lives and help us to surrender to You those things that are hindering our service for You. We ask that each part of this service would be used to Your honor and glory, that You would receive our worship and song, And Lord, in the preaching and most of all at the time of invitation, that we would go forth from this place changed to serve you, to give a testimony to your good name this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please remain 18, a very familiar story, a parable of Jesus we will be looking at today. And of course... With all of the beautiful weather that we've experienced the last few hours here, uh, everybody comes in just kind of, and I hope you found room for your umbrella and the umbrella rack out there. And uh, don't worry, it's supposed to rain like this for the next two days. Just get used to it. About the time you get used to it, it'll all dry up and be sunny again. Amen. Uh, That's the way it works. And uh, if we didn't have the rain, we'd have a lot of other problems. So... Uh, Somebody said the rain was wet, and uh, I'll tell you what, uh, I like the clear, wet rain a whole lot better than I do the white, fluffy stuff, amen? And and it's coming. It's not going to be that long. We're going to be sitting here and going, oh, there's six inches of snow, and nobody showed up. You know, it takes a whole tank of water to make a Baptist just a few drops to keep them at home. And... uh, so let's, let's look at this story today and, and ask God to teach us and encourage us. But the title of this morning's message is, I'm doing the best that I can. Now, how many of you are guilty of ever saying that? Uh, usually, we, we say that when the best we can isn't quite good enough. But, I mean, I'm just doing the best that I can. And, of course, we all need to understand something. Uh, There are times when the best you can is not good enough. And it doesn't matter how well you do. Uh, I think we've worked on this over and over again. When I was a little child, it was... That's when they started some of this stuff in our society and culture. It was a bad thing to win the game. I mean, everybody should win. Isn't that right? And uh, just recently, they outlawed dodgeball in the public schools because somebody might uh, have their pride injured if they can't move fast enough to get out of the ball, out of the way. Well, go home and practice. Amen? Uh, And, uh, I mean, we get all of this stuff here. And one of my favorites is uh, you're not allowed teachers, certain teachers aren't allowed to write on their papers with red pens because it's like yelling at their students. Uh, If you get the answer wrong, well, you'll grow out of it someday maybe. No, I mean... This, I'm doing the best that I can, really ought not have any place in the life of a believer in this book called the Bible. 
And Jesus was dealing with a whole group of people that were doing the best they could, only it was a little different. Have you ever heard this little cliche bounced around? It ain't bragging if it's true. Anybody familiar with that one? You see, the Pharisees and the religious leaders in Jesus' day were doing the best that they could. The only issue was the best that they could was extraordinary. If you were to watch them walk down the road, there would be something that would immediately draw your attention to these people as righteous, holy people. I mean, I, I have met people over the years that, I mean, the first time I talked to them, I was just impressed that this was a really spiritual, quote-unquote, godly person until I got to know them a little better. Then I found out that they were doing the best that they could. And let's just read our text here in the book of Luke and... Uh, We'll look at verse 9, Luke chapter 18, verse 9, and we'll read down here through several verses, uh, through verse 14. And he, talking about Jesus, spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Now, parables, people get into trouble with parables. We'll just stop here for a moment. Because they try to read in all kinds of things into the parables that God never intended to teach. And many times, the message of the parable is stated right there, as it is in this point. Luke gives us exactly what Jesus is trying to teach here. He says, and he spake this parable unto certain, which, number one, trusted in themselves... Number two, that they were righteous. Number three, and despised others. Now let's get to the parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Period. Verse 13. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Now this is the parable. The parable is the story of the Pharisee, a religious leader, by the way, uh, we've gone over this many times, but for sake of just repetition and reminding us about this 
the one of the basic requirements. I mean, this was before you could take the Pharisee test and be able to join and be named among the group of the Pharisees. You had to recite by heart Genesis, not chapter, book. Exodus, not chapter, book. Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And by the way, the text that the Pharisees would have been using did not have chapter and verse divisions like our Bibles do today. Those were put in there not because God put them in there, but so that man could leaf through the Bible and find different places. Could you imagine how hard it would be if there weren't chapters and verses in the book of Luke? And I said, let's find the parable uh, of the uh, publican and the Pharisee and you would have to start Luke chapter 1 and work your way all the way through. It would take half the service just to find the passage. Uh, The Pharisees didn't have that problem because they had the entire books memorized word for word. That's a pretty impressive feat, is it not? That was the base, one of the base tests for the Pharisees to enter into this This Pharisee was not what you and I call a Pharisee today, just somebody that shows up and looks religious. They were religious. They had studied. He had spent his entire life preparing to be a member of this group. And I want to get back to our phrase this morning, I'm doing the best that I can. Let me tell you, this Pharisee was doing the best that he could. Did you read? remember his prayer? We read through it. I mean, let's go over this thing. He said, I'm not as other men are. Was that not a statement? How many of us in this room? I can't quote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I couldn't do that if I tried. I have memorized portions of the Bible before. I used to be able to quote the Sermon on the Mount, but that's only three chapters. And unfortunately, if you don't keep reviewing all of these things, what happens? You forget. You just cannot do it word for word. You have to constantly review. And this man was not like other men were. That statement is very true. He says, I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust, I am pure, I'm not an adulterer, and I'm not like this this publican, almost said republican, oh boy, Freudian slip there. Um, Almost, he says, I am not like that publican over there. Now you have to understand the publicans, the land of Israel, the Jewish people were dominated, enslaved by the people of Rome much like many of the Eastern European countries were by the Soviet Iron Curtain after World War II. uh, There was oppression. There was uh, uh, problems there. Well, the publicans were the sellouts. They were Jewish people who had volunteered or allowed themselves to be coerced into collecting taxes for Rome. Now, how many of you like paying taxes? Our vice president said that's patriotic. Uh, I I like the original definition of patriotism. 
rather than the new one. But, but how would you like to pay taxes to another country? Unjustly determined. And by the way, the publicans made their living by raising the taxes and putting finder's fees and other things in there, uh, similar to what our utilities and phone companies do today, all those extra taxes and fees. And Well, where did that one come up with, Mr. Publican? Don't worry about it. It's on the bill. You have to pay it. And if you didn't, the authority of Rome was there to crush you and exact its dues. Uh, these publicans were not very likable people. And this Pharisee is saying, I'm not like that publican over there. I don't know what he's doing in the temple today. And then he goes on to list the rest of the things that he did. He said, twice a week I fast. I spend time in prayer. I give tithes that all I possess. He said, I don't just do the minimum. I do the maximum. I tithe of everything. He was talking about his own righteousness. Now, the first point I'd like us to glean here, if we could. Jesus, uh, Luke, is explaining as he is relating us here under the Holy Spirit. And he says the first issue here, the first person, the group of people that Jesus spoke again against were those which trusted in themselves. Let me tell you, if you are going to fall prey to the lie, to the comfort of I am doing the best that I can, the first thing you have to do in order to uh, believe that or to agree with that statement is you have to take the focus off of the Lord Jesus Christ and put it on yourself. How in the world can you know that you're doing the best that you can until you know who you are? Is that not the clarion call of the last 40 years? Know thyself. The answer's in your heart. There's a, an entire counseling methodology and that is where you bring people into your office. You get trained. You get certificates. You actually get to charge people uh, money to do this. As you bring them into your office and your entire purpose is to have them talk about their problems because the answer is really in that, own per in that person's heart. And if you let them talk long enough, they will solve their own problems and you can take credit for it and collect the money. Politicians aren't the only dishonest people out there. Amen? And you can go to college and learn that. They've written books about it and teach you how to do that. But if you're going to fall prey to this lie that I'm doing the best that I can, if you're going to be satisfied with that, the first thing you have to do is you have to turn your eyes inward and start looking at yourself. In fact, the way Jesus worded this parable here was that the Pharisee stood and prayed how? 
Are you looking at your Bible there? How did he pray? Thus with himself. He had gotten so used to this self-focus, this eye center of his life, that his prayer no longer ascended to God. It was all about him. How many times did he use the word I in this short prayer? I am not like other men are. I fast twice in a week. I tithe of everything that I possess. I'm not like that filthy publican over there. I'm a good guy. Could, could I tell you there's another word for this I-centered thing? Selfishness. And may I just step out on a limb today, though I'm not stepping very far, I don't believe, that if we really wanted to, as they say, cut to the chase, if we really wanted to deal with the major issue of society today, would it not be selfishness? If we could erase selfishness from the lives of drivers, I mean, there was an electronic chip in your driver's license, and it just erased selfishness when you put that license in the car you drove. Would we have traffic jams in New York City? I mean, just stop and think about this. How many of you are like me? I see that there's two lanes closing off. I get into the lane that's going to stay open. You know what happens when you get into that lane? You're going to be the last one through because everybody else is going to zip around you and cut you off. But I don't want to add to the problem. So I'm going to get in that lane. But sometimes I still get a little irritated with these little cars that go right up the side road there and cut in right in front of you and almost cause an accident. I mean, is that not selfishness? If we could just get rid of selfishness in driving, or how many of you ride the subway every day? How many would like to get rid of selfishness on the subway platform? I mean, you're trying to get out and that person wants to get in so bad they're not going to let you out of the car. I mean, it's not like they're not going to get on. There's 50 people behind them that are all going to get into the car, but they're going to stand there and not move and let you get off of the car. I mean, it's just selfishness. It's everywhere we go. Bernie Madoff. Selfishness? What other explanation would you have for one man who believes he has the right to steal billions of dollars. How do you steal a billion dollars? You'd have to hire a semi-truck to carry it behind you. Don't you think you would get caught? Greed. Another name for selfishness, is it not? I mean, we look at all of this and what I'm telling you is... We go back to the book of Judges. We go right from the beginning of the Bible all the way through the end. 
They did that which was wrong in their own eyes in the book of Judges. Did I quote the Bible right? No, if you got the right Bible, they did that which was right in their own eyes. The problem is that which was right in their own eyes had already been decreed by God to be sin. But, you see, that wasn't benefiting me. And so I'm doing the best that I can. I want you to understand that the Pharisee was doing the best that he could. And it was extraordinary. We'll get to that in a minute. It says, which trusted in themselves. He was so consumed with self that when he prayed... His prayer was not to God. God was not the thought in his prayer. The recipient of his prayer, he was. He was praying to God. By the way, prayer is a form of worship. His worship had so corrupted that in his prayer, he was praying about himself. Do you see how crazy that is? Now let me give you a practical application. The best-selling non-fiction book today, The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. I want you to understand something, that if you picked up Rick Warren's book and read it, or if you do read you would agree with about 90% of what is in that book. And the 10% that you would disagree with, you wouldn't see under normal circumstances the problems that are presented by the theology of Rick Warren. I try to listen to a variety of programs and keep abreast of what's going on. And years ago, some of you will remember the story of a young single mother who was a prison officer in Atlanta, Georgia, who was kidnapped by a murderer who had uh, was actually kept in the courtroom in a cage and had killed the guard that was responsible for keeping him there and had gotten a hold of this uh, prison officer and had forced her to take him to her house and hide him out. How many of you remember that story? I mean, it was, it was in the news. It was a couple of years back. And he was in her home for three or four days, and they were looking everywhere. I don't know why they didn't look in her home, but they never found... Finally, he shows up about three or four days later, I can't remember the exact... And turns himself in, escorted by this court officer. And her statement was this. I'm a Christian. I use my Bible and Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, to manipulate this evil man who intended to murder me and save my life and turn him back over to the authorities. Now, please don't misunderstand me. 
I'm glad that the woman was not killed. I'm glad that she was able to get herself out of that situation. But a well-known commentator gave the best, thing, uh, the best commentary on Rick Warren's book, and it wasn't until I heard this that I was able to even pick out the problem that was in the book. And he opened it up, and I can't remember what chapter and paragraph... It was Rush Limbaugh, actually, by the name. Don't get mad at me. This is what he said. He said, in chapter such and such, page such, let me read you. God put purposes in your heart for you to experience and to desire those purposes. Don't forget, and I'm not quoting exactly here this morning. Don't forget those things. Don't turn your back on what is in your heart. Because God wants to fulfill those things and he will do that through the church. And her statement was this. She said, I wanted to live. That was a purpose in my heart. So I continually reminded this man that it was wrong for him to kill me and make my little child motherless and and an orphan, and I reminded him that I wanted to live, and then it was wrong for him to do the things that he did. And after three or so days, he said, I give in, you're right, I'm going to surrender, and I'm going to let you live. Now, I want to challenge you today, and this is hard stuff, but this is where we got to be. Did not this lady do the best she could? Let me tell you, she did. And it was a good thing that she did because if she hadn't, she would have become just another victim on this man's list. And who knows, as determined a murderer as he was and is, he may still be roaming the streets doing his wickedness. But I want you to understand something. She was still trusting in herself. And in what was in her, not what was in the Bible and in the presence and person of God. Are we able to see the difference there? You see, the first group of people, the first statement that Luke made as to the point of this story was this story was for those who trusted in themselves, and we see this man taking the focus of everything until his worship of God was about what was inside him. Joel Olstein. Positive thinking, possibility thinking. Turn your scars into stars. The only problem is the the crystal cathedral is now Uh, now bankrupt and they're selling it you see it's not about what is in you when your focus comes off of God as the sovereign creator of the universe and begins to focus on yourself you will accept this lie that I'm doing the best that I can. And it may be the best that you can is like the Pharisee in our story. It is extraordinary. 
But I want to challenge you today the best that you can will not get you one step closer to an eternity with God. You see, they trusted in themselves that they were righteous. How do you determine righteousness? Well, first of all, you must take the focus off God and focus on self. That's the first step. The second step is as you focus on self, there must be something with which to compare yourself. There's got to be a standard there. You've got to establish something that you can look at and determine how well you match up to what you have set as your standard. And by the way, the easiest way to accomplish this is to choose a low standard, amen? I can slam dunk a basketball if I set the hoop five feet high, amen? Got some of you excited. I didn't know pastor could jump four foot off the floor. No, I can't jump four foot up. But I'll tell you what, if I just lowered the rim, I could slam dunk a ball standing on the floor. Does that count for anything? I mean, I could get Philip and Joseph and, and not Stephen. He's getting too big. And I could go out there and put the basketball five foot high. And I could play basketball with, with uh, Joey and Philip. And I would be the greatest basketball player in the world compared to Joey and Philip. You're not impressed? Because that kind of basketball, by the way, what is Philip, nine years old and Joey's three. Just so you know. You have to choose a standard. Now, the Pharisee had chosen an incredibly high standard, an exceptional standard, a standard that was so lofty that most people decided they could never attain to that standard. The Pharisees had 300 regulations built into their tradition on how to handle Egyptian cucumbers. That was from one of my Bible college professors who claimed to have taken enough time to read the oral tradition and count them up. Uh, I'm not going to do that, my friends. I'll just take his word for it. I don't have that much time to waste. But the issue that we're looking at here is if I take my focus if I'm going to trust in myself, then i got to compare myself to something so that the choice of trusting in myself is going to make sense. 
And I'll tell you what, we've, we've seen extreme examples and, and you can go and find uh, down to the missions of, of New York City and find people that have been ravaged by sin and human degradation in every sense of the word. And oftentimes what you're going to hear is, yeah, my life is so messed up. But I'm not as bad as that guy over there. If you knew about him, man, I'm a saint compared to him. How many of you have ever heard that happen? Does all the time. You see, if you're going to do the best that you can, you've got to compare yourself to something. You've got to set a standard. You see, if I can reach that standard, then I can, just as the Pharisee did, have a reason to trust in myself that I am righteous. I mean, he fasted twice a week. How many of you fast twice a week? I don't think anybody here does. I don't recommend that kind of fasting because if you're just fasting to prove your spirituality, does God accept it? Absolutely not. If you're going to fast biblically, it's got to be out of a heart of surrender to God and He has got to give you that direction. You can't put it in a mechanical calendar and have a real spiritual relationship with a real God. So what we do is we substitute an imitation God. One that is much like ourselves. How many of you have ever had the misfortune of having to study Greek mythology? You talk about gods that are strangely and profusely human. Look at what these gods do. They are controlled and manipulated by all the same vices that normal human beings and being quote-unquote gods, little g, little o, little d, little s, they do so in an extraordinary manner. But, you see, when I agree with my standard, then I can trust in myself. And by the way, we have another group of people who purposely set the standard very high, knowing that they will never achieve it, so that they can use that as an excuse to beat themselves up and say, I can't do anything, I'll never be good enough. All the while they're hoping to hear from you while they're giving you this palaver. Uh, no, you're not that bad, come on, cheer up, you're really good at the... How many don't... Don't admit it if you've ever done that. But listen, how many of you have ever had to put up with somebody who did that to you? And just sitting there looking for you to somehow build them up so they could have some kind of hope that what their life was all about wasn't that bad. I want to challenge you that this idea of doing the best you can has permeated every activity and, it, and every thought of our society today, it's wrapped up in this word selfishness, which if we wanted to describe our society today in one word, 
If we want a word for our generation, could we not call ourselves the selfish generation? It's all about me. It says so in your daytimer box. I mean, it's there everywhere you go. Burger King, have it your way. Indigestion in 45 different ways. Amen. But there's a third thing there. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. How many of you have ever experienced prejudice against you for some reason or another? Somebody just looked at you. And because of the color of your skin, because of the way that you dressed, I remember the, one of the first times we had an elder gentleman in our church at that time. He said, Pastor, I want you to come and track the apartment buildings where I live. And he happened to live in the Astoria houses. And I remember walking down there and and I, I stayed real close to, to the man that was there. He lived in those houses for 30 or 40 years, ever since they had opened. And we went through and put a track on or under every door in the... But as we were walking by, I could hear different things. What are you doing here, white boy? Coming out the window. I'll tell you what, it scared me a little bit. I made sure and carried my Bible with me everywhere I went so they knew. Short haircut, wearing a tie. Got to be a cop, right? No. Carry a Bible. Oh, it's the preacher. Okay. Safe. But how many of us have experienced ill treatment or people looking at you askance? You see, when you take your focus off of yourself, off of God, and put it on you, you must set up some kind of standard with which to compare yourself, and that comparison is going to demand action on your part. You've got to follow through. You are either going to use it to praise excuse or abuse yourself. You've got to do one of those things. The Bible word that encompasses all of those things is the word despised. When you despise others, what you are doing is you are raising the opinion and the position of yourself and demeaning others. You see, if I set a standard of behavior to which, by which I can attain righteousness, and you don't match my standard of righteousness, in fact, you have the 
audacity to question my standard of righteousness. I either have to deny myself and believe you, or agree with myself and despise you. Religious bigotry, my friends. Why do one, does one religion hate another? Why does the religion of Islam believe that they have the right to murder people who do not match their standard of righteousness? Because your beard is not a certain length and the ladies don't wear burqas to cover their heads and their face. And Why do they believe that they have the right to do these things? Why did the Catholic Church put hundreds of thousands, yea, if the record were really open, millions of people to death in the Middle Ages because they refused to bow the knee to Rome? Uh, because they trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. They came up with thought processes like this. If you would withhold baptism from your child, how evil a person you must be. Therefore, it is better to murder you and raise your children so that they will have salvation. Let me tell you, that did happen. Let me tell you, it did happen in the American colonies. Not as much as it did in Europe, but they were the same people that were in Europe, were coming over here and doing some of the same things. And by the way, it goes on all over the world today. People justify all kinds of things because they despise others. How many even know what has gone on in southern Sudan that was just recently recognized as its own nation? It is genocide on a proportion that has not been heard of in human history. People who would not join the religion of Islam were forced into the Sahara Desert to die. That's what it's all about. Fortunately, there was aid coming across the border from Ethiopia. There was other things going on there. And these people, some of them survived, and now they have their own nation, and they have some hope of having a future. You see, Romans chapter 2, let me just read it. Verse 14 and 15, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these not having, having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, here's the key, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. It says here that even the Gentiles which have not the law of God, when they understand, by the way, has there ever been a society known to mankind that has said, thou shalt murder? Has there ever been a society known to mankind that says, 
Thou shalt take thy neighbor's wife as thy own? There has never been a society built on what they call open marriage. It's always been one person marries another person. Now, many people have perverted that and taken multiple wives, etc., etc. In many cultures, it's a good thing to go ahead and murder the husband and then kidnap the wife to yourself. People do things like this. Where did they get this idea that it was wrong to steal and kill? That someone should have a private possession? That someone should have a thing called marriage? It's in every society, even the aborigines have marriage. Where did they get that? Well, it says here that the heathen have a law written in their hearts. It's the Holy Spirit of God telling us the difference between right and wrong. And when you are convicted of wrong, you've got to make a choice where you're going to go. We're going to work back through the sermon backwards, but it won't take as long. You see, when you're convicted of something wrong, then you've got to decide where you're going to go. Am I going to go to my standard or am I going to go to God's standard in the Word of God? If I go to my standard, then I can always change and adapt my standard to the point to where it makes me feel better about myself unless I'm trying to give up, then I can raise the standard real high and use it to beat myself up so I have an excuse not to do anything. But it's still all about me and what I want to do now, isn't it? Or I can go to God's standard. And what's going to happen when I go to God's standard? Guilty. You see, Jesus had given this parable against people, against them which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. But there was a second player in this parable. There's a second participant. His, his name is not given to us. He's the publican, the tax collector. He had a focus that was a little different than the Pharisee. He used a plural, uh, a personal pronoun, me, but he wasn't telling God what me or I had accomplished. He was asking for God's mercy. He said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This story primarily is showing us the two ways of salvation. We could go through history and come up with many, many different methods of salvation. If you want a little Baptist history, we'll go back to the year 1845. There was one convention, one group of Baptist churches, primarily in the United States, uh, it had earliest been called the Philadelphia Association. In 1845, they had met their yearly meeting and all the pastors had come together and there was an issue that had been boiling under the surface. Can anybody take a guess what it was? The issue was slavery. They brought up, the churches from the north brought up a resolution condemning slavery. The churches from the South had brought up a resolution endorsing slavery. 
And so they split. They formed the Northern Baptist Convention. Can anybody guess what the other name was? Uh, the Southern Baptist Convention. You see, the focus wasn't on God or his standard of righteousness. The focus was on them and their standard of righteousness. Now, guess who suffered greatest because of that split? How many of you think it was the Southern Baptist? Because they went through the Civil War and all of those things. It's okay if you want to raise your hand. How many of you think it was the Northern Baptist that suffered the greatest? We had some hands go up on that one, and it was. Because what they did was they substituted the cause of abolition for the gospel. Salvation now became removing social ills from our society. That's why if you find the Northern Baptists changed their name about 30 years ago to the American Baptist Convention because they were hoping to rejoin with the Southern Baptist Convention, but they found out that that wouldn't work. But if you find some of these old ABC churches around, the gospel has not been preached in most of them in generations. Because they chose to set up a standard that was theirs. Now, I'm not saying every ABC church. I'm just saying the ones that I've been, uh, been able to talk to. They substituted social issues for the gospel. I remember reading a statement from the Ohio Right to Life about 10, 15 years ago. And it was talking about people getting converted. But it wasn't Bible salvation. It was turning from pro-abortion to anti-abortion. That is a conversion. It is a change. But it is not Bible salvation. You see, when I'm doing the best that I can, I'm substituting a standard for God's standard. It's eventually going to turn around to all of your worship. It's going to be about you, of you, and by you. Because nobody else is going to worship you. I'm sorry, I don't care what that guy says. He'll worship the ground your feet walk upon, liar. It doesn't work. Don't believe him, ladies. Anybody says that has got problems. You want somebody that will love you and care for you, find somebody that worships God first. Amen? Same way, guys. Don't go looking for somebody who says, Oh, you're the most beautiful man and most handsome man in the whole world. Hey, anybody that's got a brain knows it ain't going to last long, guys. It's just not going to be there 20 years from now, I promise you. And it won't take 20 years either. Listen, here's where we are. 
Are you going to accept God's standard? When I get up God's standard, when I set up this standard, where, where do I come in? Uh, there's no measurement for me. I mean, on a scale of 1 to 10, we're in negative numbers. Uh, we're not making the scale. There is nothing that I can accomplish in this flesh that will be pleasing to God. Nothing. He doesn't need my help. He doesn't want my help. I need His. When I worship, I worship God because He cared enough about me to save my soul. I worship God because even though He is perfectly righteous, He has chosen to send His Son to suffer in my place to forgive me of my sin. When it comes to serving God, it's not something that I, can, that I do so people will look at me and say, wow, there's a really righteous guy. It is our reasonable service to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to Him who was the dying sacrifice to pay the price for our sins. Just a little note here. As many of us have given a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, even after salvation, you can fall into this, I'm doing the best that I can syndrome. It's got to be guarded against. What I need to do is put my focus on God. I don't even compare, so I'm not going there. His standard is so far above mine that without His mercy and His work in my life, there's no meeting of God's standard. Without Jesus keeping that standard of righteousness for me and loaning me His righteousness while I'm here on earth, till I stand before God, it is going to be the righteousness of Christ that covers me when I am judged of God. Amen? You see, then I have justification, not self-justification. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning in prayer. And Lord, I pray that we would be able to see these things in your word. Lord, we certainly can see the things that are in your word in the world in which we live. And if for some reason our sin has blinded us to that point, open our eyes to see the selfishness, the eye-centeredness that is all around us and permeating everything we see, do, and hear. Lord, I pray that as there are people in this auditorium this morning that are struggling, that have not yet come to a point of trusting you as their Savior, that they would hear and understand these words and realize that there's nothing they can do to make themselves pleasing to you. But if they'll come, 
God be merciful to me a sinner. That you will hear and justify their soul. Not because of who or what they are, but because of who you are and what you have already done on our behalf. Lord, I pray for the Christians that are struggling with life and circumstance. That you would give them a spiritual discernment to see the signs of beginning to trust in self instead of the Savior. That you would help them understand they need faith to repent of these things and to plead for the mercy of God each and every day of their life. Lord, we thank you that you give us an eternal salvation. And we thank you also for the struggle that is in the daily life to live out that salvation, that our dependence can and should be upon you and not upon ourselves. We ask you, We pray for each soul in this room that none of us would be of that number that look to ourselves, that trust in ourselves that we are righteous and despise others. Lord, help us to take your love to the world in which we live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Brother Franz, if you come and lead us in the hymn of invitation. 301, only trust Him. Song we use often. If you have not trusted Jesus as your personal Savior, I would challenge you.